Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello and welcome back again to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly dose of politics, news and analysis from the North. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor for Reach, the people behind the Hull Daily Mail, Liverpool Echo and Lanx Live. My main job is writing a Northern politics email which drops in your inbox every weekday lunchtime. But this podcast gives us the chance to explore some of the issues affecting our great region in a bit more depth. We're heading out to the countryside for our political guest this week as the world is going through its worst ever outbreak of bird flu. In the UK, it's been reported that around 600,000 of our free-range turkeys produced every year have died in recent weeks from the current avian influenza outbreak. And I've been speaking to Dr Neil Hudson, a Tory MP from rural Cumbria and the only vet in the House of Commons, about the toll the epidemic has taken on the poultry industry and what we can do to help. But first, I was scanning the news at breakfast today and I came across an interesting story on the BBC website. Apparently, according to analysis of 10 years of data from the Gallup World Poll, women have been getting angrier in the last decade around the world. There's a lot of potential reasons for that, I think, including perhaps that the burden of the pandemic has fallen disproportionately on women. And of course, in many ways, the UK is still very unequal. It was only a few days ago that we marked Equal Pay Day which falls on the 20th of November, which is the day that when, based on average pay, women overall stop being paid compared to men. But here in the North, there's a campaign dedicated to accelerating gender equality and social mobility from the North of England, backed by more than 70,000 people. It's called Northern Power Women. And I'm very pleased on the podcast today, we have its CEO and founder, Simone Roche. Simone, welcome. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for inviting me onto the podcast. No worries. And I know you have your own Northern Power Women podcast, which uh, people should check out. So you've, you've got all your all your podcast gear, which is uh, which is a great a great start. Um, so I thought you could maybe just first just explain a bit of the background about why you set up Northern Power Women. Just tell us a bit about yourself and sort of what prompted you to to sort of start this campaign. Uh, yeah, where are we? Seven and a half years ago. I think I, um, impatience, I think, fundamentally. Um, I spent a lot of time on the West Coast mainland and let's not get into trains, shall we? There's a whole other podcast on that, Rob. But, Absolutely. Um, um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time, um, you know, I, I fell into gender equality by mistake, um, if you like, or by accident or accidentally on purpose. Everything I was doing around um, skills, um, future talent, um, was all was always down in London and then I I found myself in an event in London uh, many years ago um in a room 
full of women drinking warm wine, which are, you know, um, and, and sort of being quite negative about what was what was bad uh, with the world. So um, negative about other women, negative about other men. And I was like, oh, well, hold on a second. I'm not sure this is going to actually shift anything. And and that was a, that sort of sparked or piqued my interest. It was something I'd never really found myself in an environment of in, in sort of um, women only events. And but what I felt in that in that moment, that atmosphere, that setting was not going to make change. And I was always drawn to role models, I suppose, always drawn to people who have great stories, uh, drawn to people who, who, who want to pass on and, and, and share their knowledge and experience uh, to others. And, and that was, those were really sort of set about getting involved. Uh, you know, when I, I got involved in this organization, I took it over, um, created a, a whole mentoring awards conference sort of platform, set up TEDx Whitehall Women while I was at it. And it was, it was during this, this period of really building this community of, of of kick-ass role models really and 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 amazing advocates that um it was one day on that train journey back up to Liverpool I was like well you know why are all the conversations in London I know that's where our you know Westminster where everything sort of centralizes around a government I get that but actually I know we've got amazing people amazing organizations uh, amazing um you know talent and leaders and influencers and in the north and and I wanted to change the geography of where the conversation was coming across you know coming from around gender equality and so I set up an event called ready for change hashtag northern power women on the back of the the George Osborne um kind of slogan and what became a campaign um obviously and I and and I created this ready for change and and I, I wanted to just bring a conversation I wanted to bring a conversation I wanted to hear and inform and enable conversations to happen that could influence um and that could lobby with it with a small l really and um what happened is the 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 name ready for change got sort of hijacked and overturned and mutinously overturned by the the hashtag northern power women and and northern power women became the sort of the campaign that has has grown to over 95 thousand now actually it's it's and it's very organic it's it's a very positive supportive community but also very galvanizing and um you know we 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 have a a, a an, a range of of things that we do but yeah that it sort of came from it's it was inspired by a train journey and frustration and impatience to to really shine a light and spotlight on the amazing uh, individuals that we have and organizations that we have here up and from the north of england yeah, absolutely. And, and presumably it was your view that there was a bit of a, a gap in not just a sort of political conversation being geared towards London, but also, I guess, in the past, past few years, there has been more talk about the Northern Powerhouse, the North as a as an entity, but perhaps not quite so much of a mixture of the two of, of people talking about the North, but also talking about gender equality. So you want, I guess you wanted to combine them so that there was a bit more of a, a female voice in the whole sort of northern northern debate the whole northern powerhouse debate yeah and you know uh, earlier this week we 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 launched a we launched a leveling up report uh, a couple of years ago and um so two years ago and that, so we're a year on from the progress report that we did and and that was really engaging with individuals organizations from across the north uh and we're always very much focused on what we can do if you like, you know, we talk about obviously now leveling up, it went away, now it's back again. Um, but we're like, well, what can we do? 
You know, what as opposed to let's wait to be given or enabled. Why don't we enable ourselves and why don't we spotlight what is good and great? Um, you know, um, I'm always a big fan of, you know, it is not grim up north. It's it's you know, we are we are made of of stern, stark grit, determination and graft and 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 I wanted to spotlight and highlight and um it, you know, earlier this this week as we kind of tracked on a year from uh, launching the level and up report, our level and up report last year was around it sounds very simple but but about getting the country mentoring a bit like what joe wicks did for pe what could we do from this mentoring environment because this community that i'm very proud of is very organic and, and absolutely passionate about giving people seats at the table giving people advice guidance paying it forward um enabling and and, and collaborating and coming together for good you you only have to look at what happens when we do talk about trains or we do talk about you know the, the the northern newspapers will come together to to put that front page together, and I I wanted to kind of really um, enable the the good stuff to come out because then that will inspire others to do more. So you know, in the last year we've we've created a million a quarter in social value, created twenty five thousand conversations between. Um, you know, amazing leaders, influences and people on the way up because we want to build that social mobility, social capital to enable our own leveling up, if you like. So it's it's almost taking things into our own hands. And it's something that we we move as we go, if you like. And if there's a um, it's not like we come in with capes, although that's a whole other great idea. But, you know, we've got so many amazing, you know, people out there that how can we galvanize that as a movement how can we lobby for that change and that positive change and change for good and that and that's what northern power women you know for me is be i'm, I'm really proud of kind of enabling really yeah absolutely and and are, are there any particular big issues that you're lobbying on at the moment i mean you mentioned you know leveling up as a, a, as a concept which has a, a whole different strands of sort of a policies attached to it i mean are, are there any particular big things that you're focused on currently the big thing we're, and again it seems really simple but it's actually as we are talking about any environment around leveling up then have we got the right people around the table i was talking with someone just earlier and you know they were talking about social value and social mobility and the commission that they were being interviewed by for for a project uh, was all very heavily white 60 plus male and there's nothing against white 60 plus male but actually if we are talking about leveling up and we are talking about having making decisions why are we not more representative when it comes to tables and having real kind of balance around those tables and different voices so the big thing for us is about making sure we're having the relevant voices heard how can we equally how can we plug some of those talent and those skills gaps so seats at the table and skills gaps is the other thing that we're really you know keen on we we know there's masses of gaps um, for women in technology, women in science, technology, engineering, maths. Um, we know there's, you know, we, we don't want to, we don't want to hemorrhage our talents. We want to nurture and grow our talents. So Northern Power Women has created something called the Power Collective. We do monthly um, bring in together of the community in like a speed date environment to help build social capital, social network around individuals to raise, build confidence, raise aspirations. So ultimately, 
guide some of these this amazing talent into into the gaps that we've got across our industry so but it's 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 very much a it is a movement we you know move together you know what is it we always look to see actually let's not try and create something what is it where are the problems you know we need to make sure we're influencing better decision making by having more balance at the table we need to make sure that we're upskilling building confidence raising aspirations so that what we're not losing a lost generation post covid we're actually enabling and supporting and and that's what that's what we're doing with the the northern power and inspired power collective which you know we hold once a month free to get involved with please do you know please do support you know um that that's what this community is is about is is making change making a difference i saw you on your most recent podcast you had the uh, rugby league player Jodie Cunningham as a sort of inspirational northern woman and I, um, I, I've asked you to do a small amount of homework and think of three examples of inspirational women in the north just to give I guess to give an idea of, of you know people doing really great work and you know setting setting a path for others to follow so wh- why don't you just take us through the, the three three women that you've chosen well that's assuming you think I've chosen three which is always a tough one because it was the hardest homework in the world Rob to be honest you know <laughs> uh, because it's I'm very blessed that every day I come across amazing people like yourself in your work you come across amazing uh, individuals and you know you talk about um, Jodie from the rugby I loved chatting with her because it was very much talking about the rugby league world cup and r- that ambition they had all those years ago to make this the most diverse and inclusive uh, world cup ever with the the wheelchair the women's rugby and the men's game all taking place at the same time amazing you know really intentional talking about intent you know talking about sport you've got jill scott you know uh former lioness now queen of the jungle but you know sort of very you know coming across as that really positive gritty funny you know human who will i'm really fascinated as to where she will go you know sort of post football um you know where she will take and use that influence and power for good but talking about intention there's a there's two amazing um, mother and daughter team called Sharon and Afira Amesu so I'm going to count them as one if I may um, although they're more than one they're like a hundred so amazing um, you know sort of um, they've set up something called She Leads for Legacy uh, which is all about you know really intentionally about how do we build that community around a black women uh, and black heritage and you know the, the work that they're doing is now spreading nationally so um, again um, just again the, the, I've, I've spoken on, on their events and you know their, their ask out is always to be intentional about what you do don't just show up or tick a box but really intentional um, and then I think the, the third person is uh, sadly uh, departed um, who passed away last year is a, a lady called Professor Jane Turner she was the pro vice chancellor of Teesside University uh, we've we've on it we've named we we named one of our awards after her based on our podcast that we had when uh, so we named her award disruptive for good because when I reflected on the the, the podcast that we into you know um, spoke on together it was all about that disruption. It was all about like, not keeping still and keeping moving. And I think for me, I wanted to, it, it's almost synonymous with that Northern Powerman community is that how do we keep moving? How do we shape change? And, you know, with the support of her husband, he was happy that we we would name a, an award in her honour. And next year in March, we will see the second recognition of that award, um, as well as hopefully another thousand people in the room making it the largest event celebrating gender equality in Europe. So, the, you know, three was a tough ask. It was. It was. I always thought narrowing it down to three was going to be a challenge, but that was a great uh, diverse selection there. And I must admit, other other than Jill Scott, not not people that I'd 
I'd heard of. So that uh, just goes to show just how much uh, fantastic work there is going on in the north. Well, Simone, thank you. Thank you so much. And so just for our listeners who might be interested in joining Northern Power Women, how, how, how do they get involved? What's the website address? We are we are power.net. Um, so we have basically pulled together our whole platform now. So uh, you can find our podcast, you can find all our events, um, you can find all about our awards on there. But we've created this platform that equally helps you give back and pay it forward as well. So that's what we're all about. We are power.net. Thank you so much. Simone Roche from Northern Power Women. Thank you. Now, it's the time of year when many of us start thinking about where we're ordering that festive turkey. But across the country and indeed the world, the industry that produces the birds for our Christmas dinner faces one of its worst ever crises. The world is going through the worst ever outbreak of bird flu with the highly infectious H5N1 strain of the disease responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of wild birds and millions of domestic ones. In the UK, it's been reported that around 600,000 of Britain's 1.2 million free-range turkeys produced annually have died in recent weeks. It's a hugely worrying time for farmers in the north and across the country. But should the government be doing more to protect the industry that's been ravaged by this terrible avian influenza outbreak? One man who's been lobbying for more to be done is Dr Neil Hudson, the MP for Penrith and the Border in Cumbria and currently the only vet in the House of Commons. He's been on the front line during some previous rural crises as he worked as a veterinary inspector during the 2001 foot and mouth crisis. So a great person to talk to about this topic. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Not a problem at all. So for our listeners who might not have heard or read too much about the avian flu outbreak. Just how bad is the situation at the moment? It is incredibly serious, I'm afraid. Um, This is, as you said in your introduction, is a highly pathogenic strain of the avian influenza virus. And it has had huge impacts on the wild bird population, but very much so on the domestic and the kept bird population as well. And unfortunately, when it comes into farms, it has a very, very high mortality rate But very importantly, the government agency, DEFRA and the APHA have to cull the birds as well, because you want to try and stop the transmission um, of the virus elsewhere. So unfortunately, farmers in the front line are are, are seeing, you know, really, really harrowing sights. And and you you, you touched on on foot and mouth in 2001. And yes, obviously, these are are different types of of animals, but I, I... very much my thoughts and prayers are with the people in the front line. They are witnessing harrowing scenes now with birds dying on their farms, but also birds having to be culled out as well. And so, and that's very, very stressful um, for people, for farmers, for vets and officials working in this sector, that the impact on people's mental health is something that we shouldn't underestimate as well. So yes, it's a serious crisis, huge numbers of birds involved, but there is a human element to this as well in terms of people's health and, and, and mental health, but also their their livelihoods and their, and their businesses moving forward. So it's a very stressful time. Yeah, like you say, I mean, presumably there are quite a few farmers whose livelihoods have been put at risk by this. I mean, are you, in terms of your patch, uh, your largely rural patch in Cumbria, are, are you hearing from people locally who are affected 
by it or is it sort of more of a national it's an it's a national picture but certainly you know i, I have significant numbers of, of of poultry uh in 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 cumbria um in terms of my constituents and and, and farming as well and it, it, it's huge impacts if people get it onto their farms elsewhere in the in the uk but also as you know that there's been a national housing order in in recent weeks where birds have to be kept um, undercover and that's to try and break the transmission between wild and domestic birds that has huge impacts for farmers in terms of um, the sort of poultry sector in terms of free range status as well um, so once the, the the birds are in for longer than 16 weeks after 16 weeks they're called barn reared and that has huge implications in terms of marketing moving forward so that's something else I've been calling the government to look at there are discussions at European level where if the state vets are saying the birds need to be housed for longer, they can still keep their free range status for longer. That's something that I think we need to look at in the UK setting so that our UK producers are not put at a competitive disadvantage. But in terms of the impact as well, even if you've got one or two chickens, you've still been told to, to house them or put netting up as well. And so it has major implications in, in, in terms of that. But obviously, if the disease comes in, it has even more devastating implications. Yeah, and you mentioned the the sort of uh, measures that are being taken to try and mitigate the spread of the disease. I mean, from the experts that you've been talking to, is there any hope that the situation is going to improve anytime soon? Because from what I've read, this outbreak has gone on a lot longer than previous avian flu outbreaks. Is, is there any end in sight? It's it, not at the moment, sadly. And because, as you say, that this avian influenza outbreak has been going on longer. It's, it's lasted for, for many, many months and come through the seasons more. It's no, more of a sort of seasonal type of, 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 of illness coming in. But this has actually been protracted so that the government officials and vets and farmers in the front line have been having to deal with this for many, many months now. Um, and so it's so important that we have these housing measures, but also very, very strict biosecurity. So people moving on and off premises and that side of things and, and taking you know, real great care with, with those sort of biosecurity side of things. So that's what the government's asking people to do is to be vigilant, to keep going with the biosecurity. But in the meantime, we need to make sure that the sector is supported um, you know, through this. And as you said in your introduction, this is a busy time for the poultry sector. Certainly the, the, the egg side of things is ongoing, but people very much thinking about um, Christmas supplies and, and that side moving forward uh, as well. So it, it, it's, it's worrying times. Yeah. And you've, as I mentioned earlier, you've spoken in the Commons, as have other MPs representing rural constituencies uh, about uh, this outbreak. I mean, what You've sort of alluded to some of what the government is doing. Are they doing enough at the moment? Could, what, what more could they be doing to tackle this? I think they are listening. I and mean, certainly we've been raising it a lot in the chamber and on the EFRA Select Committee. I'm a member of the Environment, Food and, and Rural Affairs Select Committee. And that's where we uh, will ask ministers and, uh, questions. We will write reports and, and undertake inquiries and make recommendations to government. We're actually, later on today, we've got the Secretary of State for DEFRA in front of us. So we will make recommendations as to what they need to do. And I think the government is listening. You've got to make sure that the, the compensation for this highly pathogenic strain comes in earlier in the cull process. And, and this is a different strain to some of the more benign strains in the past. And actually, it kills the birds a lot quicker. So we've got to make sure that the culling compensation kicks in um, early and, the, and that the industry is supported. One of the things I've been pushing very hard at government level, 
I mentioned the Animal and Plant Health Agency. These are the government vets and officials who are involved in the front line in terms of disease surveillance and control. And, and very much the National Audit Office and the Public Accounts Committee, I was able to guest onto the Public Accounts Committee for a report looking at the APHA's headquarters down in Weybridge in Surrey. And that's the real, the nerve center, if you like, in terms of animal disease surveillance and, and control. It needs a radical redevelopment that's gonna cost a lot of money, but what we're pressing is to make sure that DEFRA makes the case to Treasury to pay for that refurbishment because we've got to spend a bit now. It's like preventative medicine. You've got to spend a bit now to save lots in the future. And, and it's not just saving money in the future. It's also the long-term impact in terms of farming security, but also the mental health of people working in those sectors. I don't want to see sites like the foot and mouth crisis in 2001 ever again. So we've got to make sure that the disease surveillance is supported. These vets and officials are doing a fantastic job. They are coping but heaven forbid we get something else coming into the country like foot and mouth disease, like African swine fever or African horse sickness, then it's going to be very hard to cope moving forward in terms of our UK biosecurity. So it, you've got to, to make sure that these um, facilities and staff and, are resourced moving forward. I mean, it's always a uh, tricky thing to try and persuade the Treasury to part with more cash. I mean, do you think your arguments that by spending a bit of extra money now, you'll save lots of money? in the long run, that, do you think that will be persuasive? I, I think that's an important angle to it, but it's, it's not just about money saved in the future. It's also livelihoods. It's also um, people's health as well, and also the animal health and welfare implications moving forward. If you want to have a thriving UK farming sector, you need to have healthy animals. Now, I declare a strong interest in this. I'm a veterinary surgeon, so I'm passionate about high animal health and welfare, but you've got to have healthy animals if you have a thriving, if you're going to have a thriving farming sector. And the government needs to look out to support that. And that's so important. So these are threats to our country. So and, and it, it's so hard. This is a global issue. All right. Because we've got migrating wild birds moving around the, the, the globe and actually with the virus and, and then it's getting into different areas. That's very hard to control. And so what we need to do is to have some joined up thinking across governments as well. We saw through the COVID pandemic how the world and biotechnology and research and development could mobilize very quickly to develop a vaccine. We need to get similar sort of scale of, of working together to see if we can get a suitable vaccine. Unfortunately, the vaccine available now is not really suitable for this highly pathogenic strain. But what we need to do is for the world economies to be working together, the scientists, the vets, uh, et cetera, to be working together to produce a vaccine that actually then is going to try and help mitigate this in the future. Because at the moment, Biosecurity is, is one of our strongest tools, but ultimately in the longer term, we would like to have preventative medicine and vaccine technology to help us out of this. Because as you say, this is a tough situation now and uh, it, this virus ain't going away anytime soon, unfortunately. No, absolutely. And obviously you, as I've alluded to, you were around for the 2001 foot and mouth crisis. I'm sure you remember it, remember it well. I mean, has the UK's ability to deal with these sorts of epidemics improved in the last two decades in your in your view we're still there we're still okay we're coping and and we had the chief vet uh, in front of us on efra in the last couple of weeks asking those very questions we are coping but this has been likened to us fighting a war situation with a peacetime army so the peacetime army is coping at the moment um, but in 2001 
we needed vets to be deployed from different fields, you know, from different aspects of, of, of the profession into front line. And, and that potentially could happen in the future. But we need some long term planning to make sure that we've got the expertise, people working in DEFRA, people working in APHA, that heaven forbid we get stretched again, we are able to cope. So we're coping just now. But I just want to just keep putting the pressure on to make sure that we are making long term contingency plans. Um, I think the pandemic and now the war in Ukraine has brought into sharp focus the importance of food production and food security. And we've got to make sure that the UK sector is resilient so that the, the people in this country can be um, supported with food. And ultimately, we as, a, as a, an outward progressive nation as well, we have a duty of care as well to other parts of the world that are less fortunate as well. So if we can actually have a thriving food production sector, and we can help export food as well, that's good for our population, but also for populations around the world. So I think governments, again, are, it's become into sharp focus with the pandemic in terms of food supply, and now the war in Ukraine in terms of grain supplies, fertilizer supplies, energy, fuel. It's really brought into sharp focus that these sectors need to be supported for resilience in the future. We've spoken about what the government is doing, what it can do in the future. For consumers who are listening to this at home in the north, they might have seen sort of conflicting reports about shortages of turkeys or prices going up, uh, and they're worried about that side of things. I mean, what what, what should they be doing in your view? What's your message to consumers? Is there anything they could be helpfully doing in the, in this situation? I, I don't think there's any need for panic at this point in time. When we um, have had the experts in front of us from the different sector, there shouldn't be any shortage supplies in terms of, of poultry meat as well, that people are making provisions. And actually some of the farmers who've been able to then actually get their birds in and actually processed a bit earlier and then frozen down so they're available for Christmas. So there shouldn't be any concerns with that. So I don't think people need to be sort of panic buying or anything like that. Um, it's just that we need to keep our this uh, sector on our radars moving forward. This is obviously a really, really busy time, but obviously the egg sector just keeps chugging away and it's so important to be supported moving forward. So we're not seeing any supply issues at the moment, but I think the government needs to keep a watching brief on that. So I think people, what people can do, and it's something that I, I keep encouraging constituents to do is, it's so important to, to support your local producers. I think eat local, buy local, I think really supports farmers and food producers in your local communities. And that's actually good for local communities. It's good for, for, for the environment as well. It reduces the amount of distance that food has to be transported as well. And I think if we have good local thriving industries, that's, that's important moving forward. Absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Neil Hudson, thank you for speaking to us today. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.